I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Nadine Das, Professor of Early Modern Literature and Culture and a Fellow of Exeter College, Oxford, to discuss a book that she recently published, an excellent book, entitled Courting India, England, Mughal India and the Origins of Empire. Welcome to the podcast, Nandini. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, Will. It's fantastic to have you on. Now, the first question that I'd like to ask is, um, what made you want to write this book in the first place? Oh, that's that's a big question, isn't it, in a way? I suppose, for me, um, I came at this from the perspective of a literary scholar. So I, my work is on English literature of the 16th and 17th centuries, mainly literature and culture. And one of the things that both kind of fascinated me and, if I'm going to be frank, slightly annoyed me is that when you're thinking about the history of this particular period, Mm -hmm. it's often told in terms of big stories and big ideas. We think widescreen when we think about empire and this slightly earlier period in some ways. We talk about trade and sovereignty and, and empire, but we do all of that with an eye to what the British Empire was to become in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but this particular period that I'm talking about is all a little bit more than a century before that identifiable behemoth essentially takes shape. Um, and I'm, so I was interested in that prehistory, um, but I'm also, I was really interested in the stories that help to frame and express some of the, some of the oddities and some of the un, um, unanticipated angles to that story, so to say. And that comes through, through individual lives, I think. It, it's not something that you can tell so much through those panoramic, um, wonderfully illuminating as they may be, but those panoramic approaches to history. Um, so this is an attempt perhaps to tell the history of that period, but from the ground up. Absolutely. And I, I think I think it's interesting, as, as, as you say, that often panoramic um, views of history have uh, some, some flaws to them that you don't always um parts of them that aren't always uh, able to be investigated and and one of the focuses of the book though as you make clear um not the sole focus of the book is uh sir thomas rowe um who uh, was of course the the english ambassador to the uh, mughal court I, I just wondered how important do you think his individual personality was how uh, was useful in forming a relationship between the court of um, King James and, and the uh, Mughal Emperor Jahangir's court. Mm. How much of his character do you think was at the forefront of, of making that uh, link? And, and, and what do you think his own correspondence and his own diaries, which he used throughout the book, reveal about that personality? I think the short answer to that is a huge amount, really, um, in the sense that, you know, Roe goes to India when he's given the commission to go in 1614-15 um, in 
there is no formal relationship between India, Mughal India, and England. Um, the Portuguese have already been in India for more than the best part of a century by this period. Um, the English merchants are deeply conscious that they're kind of playing a catch-up game when it comes to trade contact um, with India. Um, Roe is the first person through whose eyes we get a really in-depth sense of how that contact is formalized. Um, and partly thanks to the East India Company's own obsession with paperwork, we get that kind of first contact, um, you know, first-hand perception in great detail. And that is something that um, was a wonderful resource to dig into for me, because, you know, as every researcher on these earlier periods kind of come across this particular point where we know on paper, um, the kind of institutional decisions that might be taken by a state or by a corporation, so either James's court or by the East India Company. But what we often lose out on are the interpersonal kind of contacts and tensions and communications. And that's what you get with Rose Journal, where you can pretty much trace day to day his thinking the changes, the alterations in his views, and even juxtapose that with other things that are going on to figure out exactly how that jigsaw comes together. And from my perspective, I think I found that endlessly fascinating that even when we're thinking about political or economic decisions taken, having those journals, having his correspondence gives you an absolutely kind of unanticipated view of the human intervention within that equation, really. And that's um, gripping sometimes and sometimes hilarious um, because you see exactly where the fallibility of individual human beings can completely skew a perspective. But uh, across the board, it's intensely illuminating, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think as, as well what's very interesting is um, Rose's re relationship with um, the Mughal Emperor Jahangir. That there is clearly uh, a, a, an interesting um, relationship there, but between the two of them, how do you think Roe was able to um, ensure that, that 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 there was such a relationship, given that there were quite clearly some different, some cultural differences between? Um, the pair of them. Do you think he was able to focus on the, the commonalities um, between the pair of them? And, uh, an indulgence in um, in wine and beer, for example, and focus on that and use that as a, as a way to bridge a, a gap between the pair of them and, and, and build a, a, an interesting relationship? Yeah, uh, well... That's really interesting, and you're absolutely right in kind of homing in on that personal contact. Because let's face it, in terms of you know contact between the states, Roe had very small room to stand on at this point. You know, um, one of the telling things about the the archival records that I was looking at for in when I was writing this book is that Roe spent pages and pages and pages, volumes of records on his experience in the Mughal. Um, court 
Jahangir, on the other side, the Mughal emperor, who also writes a daily account, does not mention the English at all. They don't even feature um, in his landscape. And the reason for that is for the Mughal empire, the English are not only newcomers, but they're very, very small fry in a very large ocean. Um, he, you know, just on numerical terms, the Mughals at this point, I think there's a point just a couple of years before Roe arrives in India, one of the other East India Company factors estimate that Jahangir's annual revenue is above 54 million sterling at this point. So that's Jahangir's personal revenue, which is essentially over 10 times the annual na national revenue of England in this period. So you can see that there is a power imbalance and a really interesting one in a way that, you know, it's not the power imbalance that we expect in the story of encounter between England and India. If we see it from our kind of imperial post-colonial perspective, um, this is this is not the kind of dynamics one might expect within this narrative. So for Roe, um, who is sent off by James I and by the East India Company to India um, as the first English ambassador with the task that he has to firstly impress on Jahangir the fact that, as James puts it, he is a powerful, that is, James is a powerful ruler and universally loved by his subjects. Um, and secondly, the fact that the East India Company can be a viable trade competitor, not only a trade competitor, um, but a competing foreign power um, juxtaposed with the Portuguese and with the Dutch, the newcomers who are al already also establishing their presence. Roe has very little in his toolbox to play with in order to impress Jahangir. So it's perhaps not surprising that what he emphasizes is the the human perspective, the interpersonal relationship between the two. Now, of course, it's up to question how much of this is him trying to impress his employers um, and how much of it is actually perceived equally by the Mughal court. We don't know that because, as I said, the Mughal court doesn't keep any records of Rose's presence there. Um, but it is certainly clear from Roe's account that the points where he gets to talk to Jahangir are about those things like um, their mutual interest in art, um, Jahangir's interest in alcohol. He suffered very publicly and very consciously from alcoholism all throughout his life. And he's keenly interested in finding out about, you know, other what people drink in other parts of the world. So they have a wonderful discussion about beer at one point and how beer is made and how you drink it and all that kind of stuff. So those personal aspects come out at those moments of crisis, usually when Roe is agonizing about not being able to impress Jahangir enough. And then you have this moment where they have a utterly human conversation. One of the things I think that is, is really interesting about the book is that you place the context of Rowe's visit within the, the wider um, framework of, of colonial ambition for the 
the English court. And and you and you mentioned there a moment ago about how important it was for for James to show uh, Jahangir that he was a, a an, an important figure that uh, as as King of England he he had status. How much do you think that the drive the expansion for um, English colonial influence, both in um, India, in, in in North America, and in other parts of the world, was as much about ensuring economic growth for the country as it was ensuring James's somewhat precarious position as king. That he felt that if he was ensuring that as many of his ambassadors and adventurers and, and privateers, etc., were going around um, the world and, and, and planting. Uh, the flag for his court, that it showed the world that he was a much stronger king than he, in, in many ways, he actually was. I think there's partly an impetus, certainly, to ensuring his presence. I suspect, though, it's not as coordinated as we might assume it to be, partly because James himself did not you know, very simply put, did not have the money to invest in any of these embassies. And embassies are expensive. Um, so most of the embassies that are sent, say, to the Ottoman court or to the Mughal court um, are bankrolled by the London merchants who want those trading licenses, who want those trade deals. Um, but know as well that most of these other foreign entities, foreign states, are not going to deal with what they call mere merchants. Uh, they'll want sovereign-to-sovereign sovereign contact, essentially. Um, for James, when he comes to the throne, of course, he has these fairly grandiose visions of being a new Caesar, a new Augustus Caesar, who brings peace to war-torn Europe. And, of course, that doesn't happen because, you know, You've got the Thirty Years' War, which is one of the biggest drains on human life and resources that Europe has seen historically, essentially, that crop kind of emerges onto the political scene later on. Um, but there is some sense, I think, where James is keen and aware that what happens elsewhere reflects on his prestige in continental Europe as well. So all those moments where the English merchants or English um, initiatives come across the Dutch or the Spanish or the Portuguese in those far-flung corners of the world, whether it is in the Spice Islands of Indonesia or it is in the, at the Mughal court in India, in a way feeds back into European politics and Britain's space or England's space in within European politics. You know, it's not for nothing that um, there's a moment in Rowe's accounts um, at the Mughal court where um, the Emperor Jahangir treats him really well, he says, and he's ridiculously pleased about it because what makes it even better is that the Jesuit Portuguese priests were present and he could really rub their noses in it, essentially. Um, and you can see that tension coming through. Mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned um, the Dutch East India Company there, and, and obviously the, the Spanish and, and the Portuguese and and the French as well were, were, were involved in um, making a, a expansionist uh, trading 
uh, routes into into India. How much do you think that people today, um, both in in the UK, in Holland, and in other countries as, as well, are quite aware of how important the Dutch East India Company was during this period, and and, and that other East India companies were? Because I think often there seems to be amongst the general public when you say the East India Company. People automatically think of the of the, the English and British East India Company, and don't seem to think of, of how important and how influential the, the Dutch East India Company was, for example, during this period. Yeah, uh, well, yes, I think from the English perspective, of course, there's a tendency to, and inevitably from any national perspective, there's a tendency to prioritize. Um, the initiatives that originate from that country because you're more aware of the history, you're more aware of the archives in some senses. And we talked about the English East India Company, but of course, you know, there's a point when Roe is in India when there's even talk about a Scottish East India Company uh, being established. Um, so I think what's interesting is that in a way now we're at a stage where we can begin to map out the connections and the resonances and the intersections of those multiple global initiatives and how what was happening between the Dutch and the English in, again, in Indonesia around the spice trade was affecting the way they were dealing with each other in Mughal India mm-hmm. or what was happening around the traffic in all the circulation and silver from Iberian Mexico into continental Europe was affecting continental trade with England and beyond. So that connection, that overview is becoming, I think, increasingly interesting to follow for historians in some ways. And there are ways in which we can, we've actually frankly got now, got the resources, the digital and kind of archival resources where that mapping can be done far more effectively. Um, One thing that I found particularly interesting uh, to think about in, in, in the book in, in terms of comparisons was um, Jahangir seems to be much more um, aware of and, and much more willing to allow um, religious coexistence in his empire than, for example, you, you mentioned um, Rowe's uh, excitement at being able to to rub the, the Jesuit uh, priests in, in the fact that he was being praised by him. How much do you think that Roe would have been aware of the distinction between the way James was operating in, in terms of religious policy and religious persecution and the way that Jahangir dealt with that? Do, do you think that he may have thought about that at all, considered that there was a, a certain unequalness in, in, in the way uh, that the two different courts and, and most Western courts dealt with it as, as compared to his, or, or do you think that he wasn't as concerned with that as, as perhaps he should have been? He was more focused on ensuring that he could uh, make a, a good relationship between Jahangir and, and James, rather than thinking perhaps more philosophically about the, the distinctions in the way that different religious minorities were treated at the Mughal court to James's court. I think... For both Roe and his contemporary travellers, particularly travellers from England, it's unavoidable to, you know, 
to not acknowledge the variations. Uh, just you know, if you put yourself in the place of one of those English agents or merchants or factors going to in India in around the 1610-1614 period, um, you know, you're going from a mono, largely monolingual, um, small country from you know, from a small state, which has a single kind of religious faith, a, a dominant religious faith, where other religions are being constantly questioned about loyalty, about belonging in various ways. Other languages, other nations are being con constantly questioned. And you go into this subcontinent where there, which is not only mu deeply multilingual, um, but also deeply diverse in terms of its religious faith. So to take Jahangir's example, the Mughal emperor Jahangir, who's the fourth Mughal emperor, the Mughals themselves are fairly new um, in the Indian subcontinent. The, the founder of the empire arrives um, in the 1520s, Babur, Jahangir's great-great-great-grandfather. Um, but Jahangir himself is the son of a Hindu Rajput princess and Akbar the Great, his father, um, who comes from the Mughal, Mongol dynasty, dynasty essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and Akbar, who is the one who really establishes Mughal power in northern India, very quickly realizes that simply the size and scale and diversity of the region he wants to control means that it is going to be impossible for him to impose a monolingual single religion culture on that entire landscape. Um, so in some ways what he adopts, what he utilizes is um, a very pragmatic politics when it comes to diversity within that landmass. So he goes on this idea of Nazrana. So, you know, you you take a kingdom, you win a battle against a kingdom, the can kingdom then pays you an annual kind of Nazrana, uh, an annual tax. Um, and in return, they retain a degree of sovereignty, a degree of self-governance. Um, but the same thing applies within his court. So within his harem, you'd have Hindu women, you'd have Muslim women, you'd have women from various regions of India. We know there were Venetian women who were working within the harem and going in and out. Um, an Armenian Christian woman from Jahangir's harem is married off to a, an English merchant just before he arrives to a man called William Hawkins. So it's deeply varied and that we know that from contemporary records that the English merchants noticed it because they mention it. And there's a wonderful moment where um, this utterly idiosyncratic um, and completely unpredictable traveler, a man called Thomas Coriat, who I write about in the book, he's an old kind of London mate of Thomas Rose. Um, who has taken up this bet that he'd walk all the way across India to Persia, um, has essentially a shouting match with um, an Islamic scholar, with a mullah. Um, and while the call for azan is being, call for prayers is being kind of broadcast from the minars of 
a mosque, he shouts a response back in his half-learned Persian to that, um, kind of singing the praises of Christianity as the only true faith to follow. And he reports that in his pamphlet and then writes, of course, I couldn't, I can only do it here because there is a degree of religious freedom. I couldn't do it back home. So we know from examples like that, <laughs> that people are deeply aware of it. And, you know, Roe very much understands that. It keeps cropping up in his later career from time to time. I'd argue that, you know, in the rest of his very long diplomatic career, when he's constantly talking about a pan-European Protestant kind of unity, part of that is based on his early exposure to this kind of pragmatic diversity in India. And, and, and you mentioned um, his later career there and, and, and just after he um, leaves uh, the, the, the Mughal court, he ends up becoming the ambassador to the, the Ottoman court. How do you think he saw the Ottoman court as, as compared to Jahangir's court? Do, do you think that he saw certain similarities in the way that the Sultan operated as, as compared to the emperor? Or do you think that he saw them as quite distinct and, and, and quite different courts? Well, there were certainly similarities in the sense that the Ottomans um, in Istanbul, the Mughals in India, northern India, and the Persians, the Safavids in Iran, are the three powers that kind of control that triangle of immensely rich networks of trade that actually pre-existed preceded the European entries into that kind of Red Sea trade um, by hundreds of years. Um, the difference, I think, so there's a similarity in the sense that these were all three Islamic global superpowers. So there are certain similarities there. The difference is in the level of knowledge, um, in the sense that the Ottomans are significantly, and I think we forget how much closer the Ottomans were to continental Europe. Um, sometimes we think of them as that thing over there, you know, distant in a way, but actually they're right on the doorstep for, uh, you know, decades and decades before the English even set foot within the Ottoman court. So they had a lot of accumulated knowledge about how the Ottoman port, the Ottoman court itself, works in this period. Knowledge that they got from the Venetians, the various other Italian, the French forces. So by the time Roe goes to the Ottoman court, he's not oper operating exactly in that same kind of um, not intellectual vacuum, so to say, but not really operating in that same kind of land that he had that he had to engage with in India. Um, in India, he's very much puzzling his way through things. And partly because that is because of the sheer complexity of the Mughal state. It's a really co complex, intricately structured kind of, you know, entity, enterprise. And you had to be because it was governing such a huge landmass with, you know, a huge number of people. So it's really complicated. And for Roe, part of the challenge was figuring out, 
you know, what the official challenge, uh, channels were, what the diplomatic protocols were within that. In When he goes to the Ottoman court, partly because of his experience at the Mughal court, he he's better at decoding that. And partly he knows various other sources who you, he can talk to and that he can draw on in order to get that experience, I think. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think is the greatest legacy of Roe's time as ambassador to the Mughal court? Well, um, in a row, probably would have dearly loved that legacy to be um, the establishment of a really stable trade contact with India. Um, and that's part of the thing, part of the aspect of this embassy that I find fascinating. That in a way it opens up a whole alternative timeline to the history of empire. Roe says very clearly, for instance, that trade and war are incompatible. For him, as someone who's under the employment of the East India Company, the East India Company was paying his salary. Um, he's very purely pragmatic about it. And he writes back to them very clearly saying, look, don't even think of establishing permanent bases here because that's expensive. Um, and you'd have to employ people and then have to keep an eye on those people so that they are not cheating you because you're too far away from the center. Um, and his example there is, you know, he basically says, look what the Portuguese have done. It's turned into a you know, money sink for them, money drain for them. Don't do that, essentially. So for him, he would have probably wanted that legacy to be a really agile, pragmatic, economic and financial link between the two nations. Um, but of course, that doesn't happen because he doesn't get the trade licenses he wants. He comes back and it is about 80 years before the next ambassador is sent. And in between that period, England has a civil war. By the time the next ambassador goes back, Mughal Empire itself is entering its own civil war period. So the whole situation changes there. I think. And what happens as a result is his enduring legacy is much more conceptual rather than practical in the sense that it frames a significant part of what we think of as imperial assumptions about the subcontinent, about South Asia in general, whether it is in terms of what the 18th century imperialist might call the Indian character, um, or whether it is in terms of assumptions about how Mughal governance works, how the Mughal harem influences politics and vice versa. All of those assumptions you can trace back to some of those um, very detailed records that Roe left behind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, thank you for taking um, the time to speak to me to the podcast uh, for the podcast but i do have one final question for you what do you hope that readers who read the book or, or who have already um read the book will take away from it what one thing would you most like to impress upon them through the book ah, can i have two things rather than yes. one no no of course <laughs> <laughs> well i suppose the first is that sense of readjusting um, the lens 
that we use on this um, period of contact. So readjusting the lens through which we look at empire and acknowledging that it was not always a given. Um, that there was a moment in this early two or three decades when it is very much up for the taking. It is very much an unstable, fluid um, kind of environment where English presence in India was seen as something that whose future could not be predicted. Um, and I think that's important to remember, precisely because it allows us, or it enables us rather, to avoid that kind of proleptic reading of what happens later as something that was always intended to be. So that's the first, I think, the larger conceptual takeaway. But the second thing is the one that I think I personally was really taken with and I really wanted to convey in the book, which is that very human role of individual presence, individual agency, and memory in engagements between two cultures. Now, when we see a new place for the first time, it's hardly ever completely new. It's always framed by assumptions. Rose's contact with India was framed by the plays he had seen as a young man, man of town in London. It was framed by his assumptions about the wealth that was associated in English imagination with Asia in, ge in general. Um, and all of those things feed into the way he interacts with the place when he actually gets to it. So I think that story is far more complicated than simply um, kind of tracing of events. It is also about mapping those memories, mapping influences, mapping a significantly larger horizon, a significantly larger story that goes, that starts off long before that contact, that actual contact begins in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you once again uh, for taking the time to speak to me, Nandini. If people want to find out more about you or purchase a copy of the book, where should they go to, to find out more about you and your work and purchase a copy of the book? Well, um, I am easily kind of found, I suppose, in digital space um, through a search um, through Oxford University. For the book, I think, go to your local bookstore. Um, and if you fi don't find a copy there, nudge them into getting um, <laughs> copies there. Um, and it is also available online, of course. Um, and it, it's been great chatting to you about it. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you for taking the time to, to speak to me for the podcast. Thank you, Will. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.